Let's enjoy the Word of God together. If you brought your Bible with you today or your iPad or phone or whatever you're using, John chapter 14 is where I would like to invite you to begin with me. If you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand and be glad to share a copy of God's Word. And, and of course, the note page is in the bulletin. If you can reach in and grab that, give you a place to jot down a note or two, but it certainly will also give us some direction as we spend time together this morning, worshiping God through the study of his word. If you haven't silenced that cell phone, can I ask you to do that as well? That would be a great um, help to us also. And church family, as I mentioned last time we were together, last Sunday, today we are wrapping up the study series that has held our attention week to week through late spring and into the summer, a study series titled Standing on the Promises of God. Although by some counts there are more than 3,500 promises that God has made to us in his word, we have been able to zero in on a grand total of nine of them. (laughs) So plenty more where those come from. But we've had a chance, very special promises. We've had a chance to look at the promise of eternal life that God gives to us, the promise of guidance, of victory, of answered prayer, the promise of God's constant presence with us, the promise of his wisdom for our trials, the promise to always work for our good, the promise of peace, his peace, and then last time, the promise of his forgiveness. Nine amazing promises, and today, one of the most encouraging, hope-giving, and exciting of all of the promises of God That would be the promise of Jesus' return, his promise to take us to be with him. And I hope lots of amens are coming out today. I'm sure they will be. They will. A critic of Christianity could, with with some justification, make a case for saying that there are very few things that all professing Christians across the board can agree on. And we would agree with the critic. That is true. It is mind-boggling and at times embarrassing what Christians can find to fight about, right? Sadly, we know that's true. Of course, we're well familiar with church conflicts over doctrine, the interpretation of a particular scripture passage. We've heard of churches that struggle over organ and piano versus guitars and drums, right? Um, Contemporary service versus a traditional service. Sadly, some churches, and I know you've heard of these, Churches that have actually split over disagreements about the color of the sanctuary carpet or where the communion table should be placed or what style of choir robe should be worn. It's sad, but it's true. Churches have split over such things. So there's a a lot of disagreement among Christians about a lot of things, which quite frankly hinders the ability of the church to bring Jesus to a dying world, doesn't it? We're sad to say that is true. No wonder Jesus would pray in John chapter 17, Father, make them one so that the world will know that you sent me. And we would echo Jesus' prayer and say, Oh, Father, may you make Idlewell Bible Church one, united one, so that Idlewell will know that you sent Jesus, right? That would be our prayer. But there's one thing that almost every Christian seems to be able to agree upon. Regardless of background, regardless of tradition uh, or denominational connections, and that is the fact that Jesus is coming back. There may be considerable disagreement about when he's going to do that or, or how that would unfold on a timeline, where it would land on a timeline, but 
agreement that Jesus is coming back is practically universal among Christians. How many of you believe that Jesus Christ is coming back for you? Raise your hand. Wave your hands. Yeah? We are united on this truth. Yeah. Now, there is a reason why you believe this. It is because Jesus made you a promise. That's why you raised your hand. Jesus made you a promise. On the night before the crucifixion, alone with his closest disciples, Jesus says this to them. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. Your Bible is open to that place. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, will I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. I will come again. Jesus says that. His promise to his followers given to comfort and encourage and give hope. The one who said, I have to go away for a season is also the one who says, I will come back. I will come back. Forty days after his resurrection on the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem, Jesus, after giving his followers some final instructions, he ascends into heaven. Acts chapter 1 verse 9 says, And a cloud took him up out of their sight, and then angels appear, and they declare to the disciples, verse 11, same chapter, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back. The angels declare that. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 is another place. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are what? Eagerly waiting for him. Does that describe you? Eagerly waiting for Jesus? I hope that it does. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36 For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. That's a promise from the Holy Spirit to you and me. And then in Revelation 22.20, next to the last verse in the Bible, Jesus, who testifies to these things, says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And we say, Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. As we noted a moment ago, there may be considerable disagreement about when Jesus is coming back or how that will unfold on a timeline, but agreement that he is coming back is certainly held by all of us in this room, it would appear, because Jesus has made that promise to us. Now, what we'd like to do with the time that we have left is step a bit more deeply into this promise that Jesus has made to us. In order to do that, I need to ask if you would please leave John's Gospel and run to the right in your Bible until you find the book of 1 Thessalonians and chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It comes right after Colossians and right before Timothy. 1 Thess 4, verses 13 to 18 is where we're going to hang out. Some of the most beloved of all the passages of Scripture 
that deal with the return of the Lord Jesus, and I am excited that we get to share them together this morning. Now, by way of the briefest background to the Thessalonian letters, of course, there are two. So about nine months before the Apostle Paul writes the words that we're going to be sharing, he, Silas, and Timothy had brought the life-changing message of Jesus to Thessalonica, a, a, a town in first century Greece. They proclaimed the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. His death as the payment price for sin. His resurrection as the proof that Jesus is greater than sin. That he is greater than the death that sin brings. That he's greater than the grave. They preached the cross. They preached the resurrection. And many in Thessalonica believed Jesus. Who Jesus was. What he had done for them. And a church was born. A church not unlike Idlewild Bible Church in many respects. So Paul stays on in Thessalonica for a time. He teaches these brand new Christians many things. And among the things that he teaches them is that Jesus is coming back. These letters are are peppered with references to the return of Jesus. And really no surprise for us there. It is such a precious truth. It is a promise for all Christians in all ages. However, the Lord's call on Paul's life was to take Jesus to many places, not just land in one place and stay there. And so he, he's led of the Lord to leave Thessalonica and go on to other places and plant new churches. And so he can't stay there. And though he says goodbye, he really never stops carrying this church family in his heart. And so about nine months after he leaves, he gets an update from some friends about how, the, how things are going in Thessalonica for this church. And the update is is not all good news. There's some great news, but it's not all good news. And so now in Corinth, he writes them this letter, encouraging them to hold on to Jesus no matter what. And the reason this letter is peppered with a lot of encouragement is because persecution has broken out against this church family for loving Jesus. And Paul knew all about persecution. And so he writes to urge them toward an unyielding devotion to their Savior. But as well, Paul learns that without him there to instruct them, some wrong understanding, some wrong application of some of the teaching that he had given them is occurring in this moment. Serious negative consequences are resulting from the fact that the church family is misapplying, misusing some of the things that he's taught them. And the place where some of the greatest error and misapplication is taking place has to do with the promise of Jesus' return. The persecution these Christians are experiencing is causing them to think about and to focus on with growing intensity the return of Jesus. They are saying, oh, Lord Jesus, come. It is hard living for you and loving Jesus. Come quickly. But so eager, so excited are the Thessalonians, so wishing for Jesus to come back right then are they that many of them have decided to just unplug from the culture, just to to disengage from society, to quit their jobs and just hang out until Jesus comes. That's essentially what they're doing, many of them. And so without Paul there to continue to grow them in their understanding of this wonderful promise of Jesus, they've taken this too far. They've taken their zeal for the return of Jesus too far. It's all they can think about. 
We could stand to think about Jesus' return more than we do, right? We could all do that. But as someone has observed, they were so heavenly minded, they were of no earthly good. That's unfortunate, but that's really what is happening. Their zeal for this part of their Christian life is destroying their testimony in their city. They weren't working. They weren't paying their bills. They were no longer uh, supporting themselves. Uh, the, The longer Jesus delays, the more they have to mooch off of their friends borrow but not pay back and and since they're just hanging out and not doing anything with their time but looking up towards heaven and waiting for Jesus well they start to become nosy busybodies getting into other people's business and Paul is he really takes this seriously because Jesus name is on the line he will really take up this issue some of these issues in the second letter But that old expression, idle hands are the devil's workshop, man, that was proving true here with the Thessalonians. Both Jesus and the church were becoming objects of derision and scorn by those who were outside of the church and were observing how the Thessalonians were living. And so Paul says in verse 11 of chapter 4, where your Bible is open, Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. In other words, win the right to tell others about Jesus, garnering their their respect by the way that you live for Jesus. Not by don't 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 bring disdain Uh, because of your behavior upon the name of Jesus. Live well for him. Jesus is coming back, so, so be the best citizens, the best workers, the best members of your community that you can possibly be until he does. That's verse 11 and 12. Now, having said that, Paul in verses 13 to 18 turns his attention in another direction where the Thessalonians are confused about the return of the Lord. They have loved ones. They have dear friends who have believed in Jesus and have now died. And with each of these deaths in the church, with each funeral that they attend, there's not only the normal bereavement, the normal grieving that accompanies the the loss of someone that you love, but there is an additional anxiety. There's a fear. What happens now to our loved ones who believed in Jesus But Jesus didn't come back, and now they've died. What happens to them when Jesus does come back? Do they miss out on his return? That's a question that they're asking. Paul answers these questions in the verses that are before us. And as is so often the case, someone's confusion in the Bible becomes our gain because these verses are the result of their confusion. So thank you, Holy Spirit, for that. Follow along with me, would you? Verse 13, I'm going to read down through verse 18 for us, if you'll follow along in your Bible. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And the Bible church family said, Amen. Therefore, verse 18, encourage one another with these words. Now, I hope as, we, as you were reading this and, and hearing me read it, that you could catch the, the strong pastoral heart of Paul. His goal, his aim is to comfort these new followers of Jesus and to clear up their confusion about the return of Jesus. He's not giving them, nor is he uh, giving us a complete presentation of end times theology in these few verses. He's giving us one tiny part of a much larger area of doctrine that normally comes under the heading of of last things. Or if you were in a seminary classroom, it would be the doctrine of eschatology. Now, I have read and studied enough to know that one should not be too dogmatic on the precise details about how everything is going to go in end times. Have you learned that lesson as well? God's people amazingly look at end times doctrine with a variety of perspectives. And so I've learned that. I need to hold all of this with a fairly loose hand. We all believe Jesus is coming back, right? We all do. But beyond that, it gets a little more challenging to say that we all share in common all of the details. That's why I'd like to pass on to you this quote taken directly from the Bible Church doctrinal statement that our new members read just a short time ago. Here's what it says. There exists within Christ's church a diversity of perspectives concerning the timing, order, and specific details of many end-time events. Even the most gifted and sincere Bible scholars can differ significantly in their conclusions about this amazing area of doctrine. Preserving the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, as Ephesians 4.3 admonishes us, demands that differences of perspective be allowed to coexist in a healthy tension. Right? Right? I am trusting, church family, I am trusting That will be the climate that prevails amongst us as I share with you a perspective on one small area of end times truth. Jesus is coming back, right? That's his promise. Now, that said, I believe that his coming will be a literal, personal, imminent, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial return. That's what I believe. And that he will bring with him those whom he has redeemed throughout the church age. Now that's a mouthful. But it's really not as complicated as it sounds. What I'm saying by these terms and these phrases is that I believe that the return of Jesus is not symbolic in scripture. It's real. It's the real deal. It's literal. He is coming. He doesn't send a stand in for himself. He comes personally. He comes himself. Imminent means that he can come at any moment, right? There's no other biblical prophecy that needs to be fulfilled before Jesus can come. To say that Jesus' return is pre-tribulational means that he comes before the, the, the tribulation and he raptures the Christians who are alive 
and he resurrects the Christians' bodies who have already died and gone to be with Jesus, and he takes all of us up to heaven to be with him before the tribulation. He doesn't come to earth fully in this time. He meets us in midair. There follows a seven-year period of unprecedented tribulation, sometimes referred to as Jacob's trouble. And at the end of this time, King Jesus returns to the earth with all of us, and he sets up a 1,000-year reign upon the earth in order to fulfill all the promises that he has made to national Israel. So his second coming is premillennial as well as pre-tribulational, prior to the millennium. One commentator compares the coming of the Lord Jesus to a, to a two-act play. Act one is the rapture. Act two is the second coming. And in between the two acts is a seven-year intermission called the tribulation. We are going to only look at act one. All right. You with me so far? Yeah. Say yes. All right. Great. Great. Now, if you feel your trigger finger twitching a little bit and you're itching for an end times doctrinal fight with Pastor Tim... I plead with you, keep your pistol in your holster, because if you call me out at high noon, I'm not going to show up. (laughs) A few years ago, our elder team produced a position paper on end times events, 14 events that, according to Scripture, are still awaiting fulfillment. And you can pick that position paper up on the way out this morning. If you need to shoot at something, well, shoot at that. You know, don't shoot at me. Today, we're heading with Paul in a pastoral direction. He wants to comfort hearts. And so to the confused and and grieving Thessalonians, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, dry your tears regarding your dead brothers and sisters and family members who are in Jesus. Dry your tears with the promise of Jesus' return. Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Let me tell you about those who have fallen asleep, Paul says. Now that term, fallen asleep, it reminds me of a Sunday school teacher who asked her class why it was important to be quiet in church. One observant little girl replied, because lots of grown-ups are sleeping. (laughs) Not sure here at IBC. By the way, not true. And this wasn't Paul's thought at all here either. This phrase, fallen asleep, it's used in verse 13. It comes again in verse 14, also in verse 15. It describes the believer in Jesus who has died. And it is a great way to speak of the death of a, of a lover of Jesus. As long as we understand that we're only referring here to the material part of who we are the physical body of a Christian when they die. Their body sleeps. The immaterial, the most real part of who we are, the real us, our soul, our spirit, does not sleep at death. What does it do? It goes immediately into the presence of the Lord. We go immediately into the presence of the Lord. The the real us goes there. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and where? 
at home with the Lord, right? At home with the Lord. So when you die, your body sleeps, but where are you? Man, you are with Jesus in a flash, in the twinkle of an eye. That's where you are. That's where, where you are. In John chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus talked about a dear friend that he had. His name was Lazarus. And Lazarus has died. And he's been in a tomb for several days. And Jesus says to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. And then, of course, we know as the story goes, he stands out in front of Lazarus' tomb and he calls him out of the tomb. He resurrects Lazarus, right? He reunites body and soul together. Our spirits go to be with Jesus when we die, while our physical bodies sleep. Paul's pastoral heart doesn't tell these Christians not to grieve for those that they love because grieving is a natural part of our life. Jesus wept outside of Lazarus' tomb, but he does admonish them not to grieve like an unsaved person who doesn't have Jesus and therefore doesn't have hope for their future. Those who have Jesus have an amazing hope, right? Do you have an amazing hope? Why? Because you have Jesus. And you will be with him forever. And you know that. Those without Jesus don't have that hope. Death is the moment that marks the irreversible divide in our human journey. For the saved, hope. For the unsaved, a great horror. You want to be in Jesus. To the Thessalonians and to us, Paul says, grieve for lost loved ones, but grieve differently than someone who doesn't know him. We can grieve with hope because we do not Because we really know that we're not saying goodbye forever to our loved ones in Jesus, are we? We're actually saying, good night. We'll see you soon. How much different that is because of the promise that Jesus has made. In verses 14 to 18, the Holy Spirit tells us about how this promise will unfold. Why the hope is so real, so reliable, so so available, and why every Christian can wrap their heart around it. If you flip your note page over... The reason that we have this hope is because of the promise of the rapture. It's sure. And the participants of the rapture are certain. And the plan of the rapture is set. And we're going to unpack that just a little bit together. Before we do get into that, though, my guess is that some of us are wondering where in the world this word rapture is coming from. You don't see it anywhere on the passage of Scripture that you have your open uh, in your Bible right now. You don't see the word rapture anywhere there. And yet it's all over the place on this little note page, rapture, rapture, rapture. Why is that? Well, it's actually there in your Bible. In verse 17, you just can't see it because your Bible was not written in Latin. You see the words will be caught up on your Bible page, verse 17? That's the Greek word parousia. And that's a word that means to catch up, to snatch up, to seize, and always with the idea of force and suddenness. To catch up quickly. That's the word parousia. The Latin translation of the Bible used the word rapto to get at this idea of a powerful, swift, sudden snatching up. And so that's how that word rapture comes into our vocabulary to refer to this moment. It refers to Jesus gathering all of us together Believers living and dead and catching us up to himself quickly to meet him in midair. That's rapture. 
Paul says every believer can wrap their heart around a heavenly hope because of the promise of the rapture. It is sure. Someone has pointed out that almost 30% of the Bible that you hold in your lap is made up of prophecy. One-third of your Bible is prophecy. Now, there are over 100 Old Testament prophetic statements that foretold the first coming of Jesus as Messiah and Savior into our world. And every one of those more than 100 were fulfilled to the letter. That is pointed out because it has also been observed that more that there are more than five times that many prophetic references to Jesus' second coming. And so if he fulfilled a hundred prophecies to the letter, he will fulfill five times as many. We can be five times more certain that Jesus is coming back. Can you? I can. That's his promise. That's reassuring. But that's not where Paul focuses attention. Verse 14, verse 15, he lets us know that the rapture rests on the sure foundation of three things. Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and his personal promise. Look again at verse 14. For since we believe that, what's the next two words? Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you, what is the next phrase? By a word from the Lord. Church family, this is, is, is the Holy Spirit-inspired summary of biblical Christianity. Jesus died as full payment for our sin. By rising from the dead, he conquers death. The resurrection proves that God the Father accepts the sacrifice of his Son, guaranteeing that you and I will be raised as well. 1 Corinthians 6.14 puts it this way, And God raised up the Lord, and he will also raise us up by his power. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees our resurrection. It doesn't say he might do that. It says he will. And then just as an added insurance, Paul says, verse 15, By a word from the Lord, we declare this to you. And so, brothers and sisters, the rapture is not a a man-made, feel-good doctrine. It's It's not religious, wishful thinking. It is sure and certain. It is a truth. A promise. Jesus said, I, if I go and, and prepare a place for you, what am I going to do? I'm going to come back and take you to be with me. That's a promise. So if the rapture was a building, if the doctrine of the rapture was a building, we could say that it rests on three massive footings. The redemption of Jesus provided by his death, the resurrection of Jesus at his empty tomb, and the promise that Jesus made, I am coming back. Nothing is more sure in the universe than that the rapture will happen. Amen? Man. Then in the second half of verse 15, Paul says, not only is the promise of the rapture sure, the participants of the rapture are certain. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. There are two groups of people who will participate in the rapture. Only two. Not three, not four, only two. Believers in Jesus who are alive when Jesus comes and believers in Jesus who have died before he comes. In order to be a participant, you have to be in Jesus Christ by faith. Are you in Jesus today? 
Paul says, we who are alive, indicating he definitely thought that Jesus could return while he was alive. Christians in every age have held this hope, have held this conviction that their Lord could come back during their lifetime. You believe that to be true. Paul was ready to be raptured. I'm ready to be raptured. Are you ready to be raptured? Yeah, because you're in Jesus, right? But Paul's pastoral heart doesn't just think about the living Christian. He mentions those who have fallen asleep because that matters to the Thessalonians, and it should matter to us. He tells them that believers who have died will not only not be forgotten and not left out, they get to be first in line when Jesus returns. How cool is that? The living will not precede those who have fallen asleep. When the rapture occurs, the Christian dead who have been with Jesus throughout all the ages of the church, from the beginning of the church to the present moment, they're going to be taken care of first. They are with Jesus. But then they need to have their bodies resurrected to be joined to their spirit forever and ever. This will answer the question that the believers in Thessalonica had about their dead friends. There is such a thing. There's no such thing as a second class saint. No believer, living or dead, misses the rapture. Nobody gets left out. The dead, well, they're first in line. And then a third reason the Thessalonians and us have a great hope in the promise of the rapture is because the plan is set. The plan of the rapture is set. It cannot be changed. That's made clear in verses 16 and 17. Once again, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Does that sound like a plan? (laughs) Does that sound like it's set? Yeah. Paul outlines seven major parts to this heavenly plan. And it all begins with a sudden descent. King Jesus himself comes from heaven in majestic glory, full of grace and truth, bearing the scars in his hands and his feet in his side of the cross. And the words of Acts 1, verse 11, that we read at the outset, printed there on the front of your note page, come true again. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He will descend. And his coming, we're told, will be heralded by a loud command. Paul uses a military term here that everybody in Thessalonica would have understood. It would be similar to saying, attention, fall in. We understand that, right? We understand what that means. We understand that command. We understand the context out of which it comes. It's a military command. The commander-in-chief of the armies of heaven has issued an order to all Christians living and all Christians who have died. Get on your feet. Fall in. I'm on my way. The loud command. Many wonder if the unsaved are going to hear this command. We don't know. Maybe. Or it might sound like thunder or something indistinct to an unredeemed ear. But one thing is crystal clear. When that command is given, you're going to understand it. You're going to hear it. You are going to hear Jesus call to you. Then we'll hear the voice of the archangel. Third. Now, the only archangel mentioned in the Bible is Michael. Daniel chapter 10, Daniel 12, Jude verse 9. Jesus issues his orders and his angelic lieutenant, 
who is a mighty warrior in his own right, echoes those orders right down the chain of command. Get everybody. Bring them all together. Fourth is the trumpet call of God. Now, we read about trumpet blasts in Scripture with some frequency. Sometimes it's to call a meeting. Sometimes it's to rally an army to a battle. Uh, In Zechariah 9, verse 14, a trumpet sounds to signal that the Lord is about to rescue his people. And so we're going to hear this trumpet when it blasts. Jesus is going to rally us. He's, He's preparing to rescue us from the coming wrath that's going to be poured out upon the whole earth at the tribulation. So the trumpet blasts, we hear that. And then the next thing that happens is there's a great resurrection. Underline the words in Christ there in verse 16. That's really important. Only those who have died genuinely, sincerely believing in Jesus, only their bodies are going to be resurrected to be united with their spirits, which are already with Jesus, right? Yeah. 1 Corinthians 15:52 says, In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Believers' bodies are reconstituted who have died. Ours are transformed so that they will be perfectly suited to a life in heaven, never ever to die again. The unsaved dead, they're going to experience a resurrection too, aren't they? But not at this time. Revelation 20 talks about that. At that resurrection, that will not be a resurrection to eternal life. That will be a resurrection to eternal judgment. You do not want to be part of the second resurrection. Revelation 20 verse 6 makes that abundantly clear. You want to be in Jesus. You want to be a part of the first resurrection. And then a glorious rapture. That's the sixth part of Jesus' plan. The word rapture always implies a change of location quickly. And so in the twinkle of an eye, every believer in Jesus living on the earth is instantly caught up by the awesome power of Jesus. We join all the redeemed from all the other ages. And this fragile skin and bone body that we have is transformed into the same imperishable body that Jesus has. And that all the dead saints have been given. In one moment, you're driving your car, and the very next nanosecond, you're flying through the clouds. It's that quick. One minute, you're running to beat the rain. The next minute, you're being blown dry at 30,000 feet. One second, you're eating chips on the deck at La Casita with me. And the next moment, your table is vacated, and a blue jay sweeps down and takes your chips. It's just like that. We'll be here one moment, and the very next moment we are gone and transformed. How does verse 17 end? And so we will always be with the Lord. Amen and amen. And then taken as a whole, all, of, all that we've described in verses 16 and 17, it translates to an incredible, great grand reunion. This will be the family reunion unlike any other family reunion. The Christians from 20 centuries and from every land and nation and tribe and tongue will be gathered together finally and forever. Those who have loved Jesus and, 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 and those who have died in Jesus and all of us who are alive, we will be together never to be apart again. That will be wonderful. 
But the most glorious part of this reunion is that we get to see who? We get to be with Jesus, our exalted King, who is also our brother and our Savior. And we will see the wounds that redeemed us. And those wounds will powerfully remind us that what makes this moment of rapture possible is his death and resurrection and our faith in that. That's the plan. And nothing, 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 nothing can change the plan. It is sure. It is certain. It is set. And we say amen. And that brings us to a fourth and final thought there before we head home. The power of the promise. The promise of Jesus' imminent return supplies every believer with a great hope, with incredible endurance and with staying power because we know what's coming, right? We know what is coming. Paul ends this fourth chapter with verse 18. Therefore, what? Encourage one another with these words. Build each other up with these words. This is a promise. One of the main purposes of Bible prophecy is to, is to give us hope, to comfort us, and to encourage us. Our God's not shooting from the hip, church family. He's not writing the script as he goes. Paul essentially says, don't worry about those whom you have loved and they have died loving Jesus. They're, they're fine. They're great right now. They're with Jesus right now. And you will be there with him when the trumpet blasts. So hold on tight to Jesus. Do not let him go. And as you wait for him, live well for him. Work hard. Walk obediently. And keep your eyes looking skyward. Because you never know when the trumpet will blow. Right? You never know when the trumpet will blow. Let's pray together. Oh, man. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, this has been... This has been sweet. This has been a rich time for us. Thank you for the encouragement that comes to our souls. Thank you for the confusion of the Thessalonians, if I can say that to you. Thank you, because that has resulted in some great truth that has come down to us by your spirit. Lord, I thank you that I am part of a church family that believes the truth of your imminent return. That you have a plan. That you already have taken great, great care of our loved ones who have gone before us, who have preceded your return. We thank you that they are with you today. We look forward to that moment when we will be reunited with them in the air, in the twinkle of an eye, and our bodies will be transformed, and we will be with you forever. In order for all that to happen, Lord, we know that we have to be in you by faith. And in this room this morning, it is possible that there is one, maybe more than one, who has never stepped into a personal faith relationship with you. And if I would be talking to you, if you're still on the edge with regards to the claims of Jesus in your life, do not stand on the edge anymore. Step over into the full life that Jesus promises to give you through faith in himself. Acknowledge your sin. Confess to him that you need a Savior, that he is that Savior. And then prepare for the rapture because that will belong to you too. Do not leave this day, do not leave this building without having made that decision because you do not know if Jesus will come in the next moment. He certainly could. 
Lord Jesus, we love you. We really do love you, but only because you loved us first. Thank you for this incredible promise. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen.